Our Father and God in heaven, Father, we thank thee for allowing us to study your word. We ask for your Holy Spirit here in a mighty way. Father, time is limited, so Father, lead my mind and lead my heart in your way, Father, in covering the pertinent points. And may your people be touched by your Holy Spirit, both mind, heart, and deed, to be workers for you in this crisis hour that's soon to come. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last presentation, we have established that Jesus, in the closing scenes of his life, set up a pattern for those that are living in the last days that will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And what is that special group of people called? Can we say it louder? 144,000. Amen. They follow in the steps of Jesus, who is an example for us, even in his suffering. And so the, we've examined the first session of the various foundational principles that what Christ did from Gethsemane on forward to the cross is a pattern for what God's people, this final generation, must go through as a pattern of what we are to go through in a spiritual experience here in the last days. And I find it by no happenstance that Ellen White counsels us in Desire of Ages, page 83, paragraph 4. She writes, It would do well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially... The closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. So she says that we should spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplating the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. You know, we could spend a whole hour on television, can't we? We could spend a whole... Young people could spend four or five hours on video games. And God is only asking us an hour to contemplate the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. What a bargain God gives us that we could spend three hours in, in, in foolish movies and video games, but God is saying, my child, spend one hour in thoughtful contemplation in the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. Why? So it'll prepare you and I to face the crisis hour that's soon to come as an overwhelming surprise. Now, did you know that Jesus, way before Gethsemane, way before the Passover time when he gave the ordinances, did you know that Jesus warned the disciples that he would die, that there was a crisis that was soon to come for the disciples? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 20. Matthew 20. Matthew 20, verse 17. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. When you're there, please say amen. Matthew 20, verse 17. 
The Bible says, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Now this is very significant. Jesus is saying that there's going to come a time when the chief priests, the scribes, shall condemn him to death. Now, who do the chief priests and the scribes represent? They represent the religious leaders. They represent the church. Now, question, in today's society, does the church or does any church in this nation have the authority to institute a death penalty or execute anybody in this country? Yes or no? No. No. In the time of Jesus' life in Judea, the Jewish nation had no authority to execute anybody. They can only condemn. Condemn is to cast judgment on someone to die. And Jesus said in verse 19, He shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Now question, who was the ruling power in Judea? Who were the Gentiles that Jesus was talking about at that time? The Romans. And the Romans were what? They were a political or government or state authority. So in other words, Jesus was prophesying to his disciples that church and state will collaborate and kill Jesus. You see, the Roman authorities have the power and authority to execute anyone in Judea. It was not reserved for the Jewish religious leaders. Likewise, in the last days, it is not the church authority that's going to kill or try to destroy God's people, but it's the governmental civil authority that is going to listen to the church and collaborate with the church, and the church will influence the state to persecute God's people here in the last days. And so Jesus warned his disciples that church and state will, will unite. Well, remember, going down to verse 20, it says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, that's James and John's mom, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Now, Jesus has just given a prophecy that church and state will merge to kill him. Now, here he comes, John and James' mom, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, saying, you know, Jesus, when you establish your earthly kingdom, when you restore the superpower political authority of the Jewish nation, can my sons be in your high cabinet office? You see, the disciples did not get that a crisis was soon to come. And how did the disciples react to the message of the crisis approaching? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Matthew 17. 
verse 22. Matthew 17, verse 22. And when you're there, please say amen. Matthew 17, verse 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they, which is the disciples, God's church, were exceeding sorry. Are we, when we hear our end time message, are we when a man of God, a watchman of Israel, is preaching with power saying, a crisis is coming, we must prepare, are we reacting by being exceedingly sorry? You see, the condition of the disciples is the condition of God's Last day, church. I want to read you a statement from Great Controversy, page 594, paragraph 1. Before his crucifixion, the Savior explained to his disciples that he was to be put to death and to rise from, again from the tomb, and the angels were present to impress his words on minds and hearts. But the disciples were looking for a temporal deliverance from the Roman yoke, and they, wouldn't, they could not tolerate the thought that he in whom all their hopes centered should suffer an ignominious death. The words which they needed to remember were banished from their minds, and when the time of trial came, it found them unprepared. The death of Jesus has fully destroyed their hopes as if he had not forewarned them. So in the prophecies, the future is open before us as plainly as it was open to the disciples by the words of Christ. The events connected with the close of probation and the work of preparation for the time of trouble are clearly presented. But multitudes have no more understanding of these important truths than if they had never been revealed. Satan watches to catch away every impression that will make them wise into salvation and the time of trouble will find them unready. So like the disciples were amply warned of what Christ was going to suffer in his crisis hour, so too we are warned amply in clear, distinct lines of what's going to happen in a time of trouble. And like the disciples, they were unprepared, and many in God's church were unprepared in that crisis hour. Now, what was the feelings of Jesus when he approached his crisis hour? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36, as he approached Gethsemane, the Bible says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. So what was the emotion of Jesus when he was entering Gethsemane? He was sorrowful. His heart was exceedingly sorrowful. And remember, we read the statement before in our previous presentation in Desire of Ages, page 687, paragraph 1. Remember when he was praying that it was taken to his mind that his own people would reject him. 
that his own disciples were rejected, that his own people, that he lovingly prepared the sacrifice, the fulfillment of the Passover to take away the sins of his people, the very people he came to save will kill Jesus. His own church would betray him. And so he was exceedingly sorrowful, knowing the prospect that his very brothers whom he ministered with, the very church that he so sought to reform at that time was going to kill him for doing good in behalf of them. You see, in Isaiah 53, verse 3, the Bible says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So Jesus is described as a man of sorrows, and that was fulfilled in verity in Gethsemane when he said that my soul was exceedingly sorrowful. He was sorrowing after the rejection of his own people. You see, God's last day people will be also sorrowful. They will be sighing and crying. In fact, notice the Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. Of those that will be sealed with the seal of God in the time of trouble. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 3. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 3. And when you're there, please say amen. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 3. The Bible says, And the glory of the God of Israel has gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. You see, linen, what color is linen? White. And God's angels are described to wear why? You can have numerous biblical references, be it in Revelation, be it in the Gospels, be it in Acts. You see that angels are adorned in white. And prophetically, in a spiritual application, Jerusalem represents the church. And in the midst of the church, in the midst of Christianity, these God's faithful followers will be sighing and crying for the abominations that will be happening in the Religious sphere in the last days. In fact, notice what volume 5 of the testimony, page 210, paragraph 2 says. The command is, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. These sighing, crying ones that have been holding forth the words of life they had reproved, counseled, and entreated some who has been dishonoring God, repented, and humbled their hearts before him. Continuing on. In the time when his wrath shall go forth in judgment, these humble, devoted followers of Christ will be distinguished from the rest of the world by their soul anguish, which is expressed in lamentation and weeping, reproofs, and warnings. 
Their righteous soul are vexed day by day with the unholy works and conversations of the unrighteous. They mourn before God to see a religion despised in their very homes and of those who have had great light. They lament and afflict their souls because pride, avarice, selfishness, and deception of almost every kind are in the church. Jesus was mourning for the spiritual condition of his church in Gethsemane. In the last days, we who are the followers of Jesus must sigh and cry and mourn for the condition of God's people here in the last days. And it's so difficult, brothers and sisters, as humans, we, we sometimes cannot connect the sin from the sinner. Inspiration tells us that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And likewise, brothers and sisters, when we see abominations and we see things that are uncouth around us, even in our gatherings, we must not hate the person committing it, but hate their actions, but love them, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Remember Moses in the time of the Israel apostasy with the golden calf? What did Moses do? You see, God said, To Moses, listen, listen, Moses, this is what I'll do. You can find this in Exodus 32. God said to Moses, listen, I'll wipe out all the children of Israel and only your seed will remain. In other words, God was telling Moses, hey, listen, I'm going to set up an independent church and wipe out the organized church at that time. And what did Moses do? Did Moses... Say, amen, we'll set up a holier group on our own. We'll have our own independent church and destroy the general conference at that time. No. Moses said, Father, blot me out of the book of life. Not them, but me. That is the same spirit. That is the true spirit of revival and reformation. Those that seek to reform God's church within must have that spirit saying, Father, Blot me out, not those that are committing the apostasies. And likewise, Jesus was sighing and crying for the condition of his church. Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 211, paragraph 1, Inspiration writes, The class who do not feel grieved over their own spiritual delinciation, nor mourn over the sins of others, will be left without the seal of God. We must mourn. Not condemn, but mourn Amen. the condition of our brethren. Now, what other account did Christ mourn for his people? Notice what the Bible says in Luke 19. Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 41. Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 41. And and Jesus said, in describing Jesus, as he approached Jerusalem, it says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, 
saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench upon thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. So when Christ beheld his people, when he saw Jerusalem, he wept over it because his prophetic eye saw that in AD 70, Jerusalem will be destroyed in the most excruciating way. Do you know during that time when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem, do you know that the mothers were so hungry that they ate their own babies? Do you know that there was so much blood in the streets of Jerusalem? Josephus says that the blood was knee-deep on the streets of Jerusalem. And Christ was weeping for the condition of his people. Now, we remember that Jesus was a man of sorrows. And notice, in Thoughts on the Mount of Blessings, page 12, paragraph 4, Inspiration writes, Blessed are they also who weep with Jesus in sympathy with the world's sorrow and in sorrow for its sin. In such mourning, there is intermingled no thought of self. Jesus was the man of sorrows, enduring heart anguish such as no language can portray. His spirit was torn and bruised by the transgressions of men. He toiled with self-consuming zeal to relieve the wants and woes of humanity, and his heart was heavy with sorrow as he saw multitudes refuse to come to him that they might have life. All who are followers of Christ will share in this experience. As they partake of his love, they will enter into his travail for the saving of the lost. They share in the sufferings of Christ, and they will share also in the glory that shall be revealed. One with them in his work, drinking with them the cup of sorrow, they are partakers also of his joy. Amen. That's why soul winning is so important. You see, when you knock on doors and that person slams on your face, you are giving them something of eternal significance. You are giving them something that exceeds far the riches of any rich tycoon in Dubai. You are giving them the message of salvation. And when they slam the door on your face, you mourn for them. God is teaching us through evangelism and through soul winning to practice and to prepare ourselves to sigh and cry during that crisis hour. And that's why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. We should evangelize. Who cares if they curse at you, brothers and sisters? We are representatives of the sovereign of heaven. We should just sigh and cry for them. You see, when they reject us, God is teaching us when the great persecution comes, when we are hated of all men, how will we react? That is why the rejection part of soul winning is also of great importance. Soul winning, the fruit of soul winning, of baptism, that is a blessing. We are joyous, but when we are rejected, when we are persecuted, when, when neighbors curse us out, when they tell them not to come anymore, when they throw stuff at us, God is training us for that great crisis hour that's soon to come. That's an overwhelming surprise.
Now, we know the condition of the disciples. The disciples were sleeping in Gethsemane when Christ told them to watch and pray. Volume 2 of the Testimonies, page 205, paragraph 1. We've had this quote in another statement from the Spirit of Prophecy, but this says in inspiration, but these sleeping disciples represented a sleeping church when the day of God's visitation is nigh. It is a time of cloud and thick darkness when to be found asleep is most perilous. And so the disciples were sleeping. But what did Jesus do to the sleeping church? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 40. Matthew 26, verse 40. Notice what Jesus did when the disciples were sleeping. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, when Jesus came to Peter and the sleeping disciples, what did Jesus do? He woke the disciples up. He woke them up with the message of solution to stand in their crisis hour, which is to watch and pray. When we see the sleeping church, when we are awake, when we are watching and praying, what do we do? We go to our church and we do our part to wake our brothers and sisters up. Just like Jesus woke the disciples up when they were slumbering. Why is the church asleep? In Romans chapter 13, verse 11 to 13, the Bible says in Romans 13, Verse 11 through 13. The Bible says, and that knowing the time. Should we know the time, brothers and sisters? And in prophetic time, we are living in the time of the end in earth's history. Now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is your salvation nearer than when we believe. The night, remember, night represents a time of trouble. Was far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. Why are people asleep? based on this text contextually, because they were rioting. In other words, they were partying. They were drunk. They were chambering, which they were having, you know, illicit cohabitation, wantonness. There was strife. People were fighting with each other, and there was envy. People were, oh, he had that position in the church. Why, how, could, how dare he be head elder? And he passed me by. And that's why it causes many to sleep in God's church. And notice what the Bible says in Luke 21. Luke 21. Luke 21, verse 34. Luke 21, verse 34. Luke 21 is a companion of Matthew 24. 
Luke 21, verse 34, the Bible says, And take heed to yourselves, lest any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, so that day come upon you unawares. And so, what caused many to sleep is rioting, drunkenness, chambering, wantonness, strife, envying the cares of this life. So Christ came to the disciples and he woke them up with a crisis hour message. It's interesting. Jesus equated the last days to another incident in in account in the book of Genesis as we parallel from Gethsemane. Notice what the Bible says in Luke 17. Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 28. The Bible says in Luke 17, verse 28, Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So God is telling us that the last days is equated to the days of Sodom. And did not Sodom have drunkenness? Did not Sodom have wantonness? Did not Sodom have chambering? Did did not Sodom have surfeiting and the cares of his life? Remember Lot's wife? She had the cares of his life. She could not bear to leave that city. And so Jesus is telling us a type, saying that just like in the days of Sodom was, so shall it be, the days of the Son of Man shall be. But what did God's people, what did God commission God's people in the city of Sodom to do? Notice what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19. Genesis 19, verse 12. Genesis 19, verse 12. And the angel of the Lord, these two angels visit Lot, and the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whosoever thou hast in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And when Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law which married his daughters and said, Up, get you out of this place. For the Lord will destroy the city, but he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, and the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. You see, Lot, who represents God's people, the righteous, were commissioned to go to Sodom, to go to their family members and their loved ones, and to wake the fellow citizens of Sodom out of sleep, saying that Sodom is about to be destroyed. There is an end-time message for Sodom's probation is about to close. Get you out of the city. 
And what did Lot suffer? Rejection. The people rejected their probationary message. The message of salvation they rejected. So too in the last days, when we preach this message of the third angel, we will be rejected by many and hated of all nations. But the joy and the silver lining is many of the sincere believers, the real Christians in the fallen churches of Babylon will join the ranks of God's fold when that loud cry of the fourth angel is declared. And so although people will be shaken out, many of the true followers of God will come in to the remnant fold. What is the state of God's people to be? Notice what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. Are we to be asleep? Do we for sure know that we're living in the time of the end? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. The Bible says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. Question. Does the day of the Lord come as a thief in the night for every single inhabitant on the earth? Yes? Some say yes, some say no. Let's read the text. Let's go on further. For when they shall say peace and safety or peace and security, are we seeing here peace and security? That we will secure you from the war and terrorism? We will establish peace. We will give you security with universal health care. We will give you security with the federal government. Do we see that right now going on? A change is coming. Hope. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon the woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. In other words, we will know the nearness of Christ's return. We may not know the day and the hour till the close of probation, when the seven last plagues are falling. But, we could know the approximate closeness of that time. Amen. Verse 5, Ye are all the children of light and the children of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others do, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. So God, has given us the prophetic light to allow us to stand in a crisis hour. And so, I want to read you this statement from Maranatha, page 138, paragraph 2. Transgression has almost reached its limit. Confusion fills the world and a great terror is soon to come upon human beings. The end is very near. We who know the truth should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. Are we as a people asleep? 
Oh, if the young men and young women in our institutions who are now unready for the Lord's appearing, unfitted to become members of the Lord's family, could only discern the signs of the times, what a change would be seen in them. The Lord Jesus is calling for self-denying workers to follow in his footsteps, to walk and work for him, to lift the cross and follow where he leads the way. Many are readily satisfied with offering the Lord trifling acts of service. Their Christianity is feeble. Christ gave himself for sinners. With what anxiety for the salvation of souls, we should be filled as we see human beings perishing in sin. These souls have been bought at an infinite price. The death of the Son of God on Calvary's cross is the measure of their value. Day by day, they are deciding whether they will have eternal life or eternal death. And so, brothers and sisters, like Christ in Gethsemane, who saw a sleeping church and did his part to awaken the disciples, so too, we are to do the same. We are to go to our fellow church members and awake them out of sleep. And brothers and sisters, ministering to your own brethren within your own church is far the most difficult work you are called to do in ministry. It's easy to do evangelism because people in the world are so hungry for the truth of the Word of God. But when we go to our fellow church members and say, oh man, I heard it all already. What new can you bring? I don't believe it's coming soon. Ellen White's not a prophet. She's in the Victorian age. Who cares? Let's embrace this progressive type of belief. Let's make the Seventh-day Adventist relevant for the postmodern age. You see, the Bible is eternally relevant. Postmodern, modern, or amodern, or whatever modern, or antiquity, the Bible will always be present truth. And so, brothers and sisters, we have a great work to do, but little time. Are we going to weep during the crisis hour? Are we going to sigh and cry for the abominations that's done in the land? Are we going to be sleepless and weeping and interceding for our fellow church members so they could be co-laborers with us in this great, most important work that the Lord has commissioned mortal men to do. Do you know that the disciples and the prophets and the, and the patriarchs of old all wish to be here doing this great work, but God shows feeble, sinful us in the age of internet pornography, in the age of direct TV, in the age of NBA basketball and satellite conveniences and Twitter and Facebook and MySpace in this wicked and perverse age, God has chosen feeble, sinful, erring us to finish this great work. Can you imagine that? What mercy and grace he has. He could have chosen the prophet Daniel who wrote the vast vistas of Bible prophecy, John the Revelator, all the disciples of old that have preached with power and conviction, that baptized thousands in the day. But he's going to pick you and I? who are so feeble, 
who trip and fall and don't know from the right to the left. Friends, we have great work for a little time in this Gethsemane experience that we're going to endure. The challenge for us is will we sigh and cry like Jesus sighed and cried for the condition of his disciples? Will we go and try to seek to wake them up as Jesus sought to wake up his disciples to say, watch and pray for the crisis is near. If that's your desire to say, Father, today, help me to be a true reformer within my church. Help me to sigh and cry, to unconditionally love those that are not going forward with the cause of truth. Help me to pray for them. Help me to love them. Help me to befriend them. You know, inspiration says the best argument for Christianity is a loving and lovable Christian. Ministry of healing. I mean, we, we can preach the truth all we want. We can know all nine volumes of the testimonies and the spirit of prophecy. We can break down Daniel 11 and Daniel 8 and, and Revelation 17 all we want. But if we do not have the spirit of a loving and lovable Christian, oh, Father, help me. Amen. A sinner. Amen. We are but sounding cymbals, a tinkling gong. But what profit of anything without the unconditional love of Christ running through our veins? And if it's your desire to, today to say, Father, help me to commit to sleepless weeping for your people. Help me to be your representative in, in awaking God's people at the times that we're living in so that many will be prepared to, this, to do this great work. If that's your desire, I simply ask that we get on our knees and pray for that experience. Our Father and God in heaven, Father, we thank Thee for Your mercy and grace. Father, we are kneeling because we are in desire need of Your love in our hearts. Oftentimes, the trials and tribulations and the persecution that we endure, the slanders we endure from our fellow brethren, often is causing us to have our love, our first love, be snuffed out of our hearts. And so, Father, help us to endure to the end. Help us to maintain the love and the charity for our fellow brothers and sisters, even those that are in the erring path. Father, help us not to be instruments of condemnation, but help us to be instruments of redemption. Help us that our homes be a preaching sermon that we truly enjoy living out the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. That through our everyday life, people will see so, so much joy in the reforms that we do so that we make the revival and reformation in our lives so attractive that many of us, Many of your people will, will then realize the beauty of our message. Father, we thank thee for your mercy and grace. We ask you to be merciful upon us to give us just a little more time so we prepare to stand in this crisis hour. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.